Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Sam Colt is seen by many as a hero of America's Industrial Revolution. They were trading with states that were engaging in the enslavement of four million people. So that's who Colt is, too. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at how you tell the complicated history of the Colt dynasty. We'll also examine the history of the first in the nation primary, a point of pride in New Hampshire, which has had a pretty weird week of election news. And dams clog up rivers and streams all over New England. Environmentalists want to take many of them down to improve habitat for fish. But some entrepreneurs want to put them back to work doing their original jobs, making power. We've got to figure out a way to keep our economy moving forward. And hydropower is one of those good ways to do it and also play nice with the environment at the same time. Plus, deep in the woods, just over the border, a place of magic and big tourism dollars. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The rivers and streams of New England are littered with thousands of dams. Many of these were used to produce the energy that sparked industry here, but now they're doing nothing more than clogging up waterways. For many reasons, it's hard to remove larger dams, but conservationists are turning to small dams, many of them privately owned, that are scattered across the region. As part of our energy project, The Big Switch, Kathleen Masterson took a closer look. One ecologist described the dams blocking Vermont's rivers as a series of clots in a vast network of arteries. New England has seen multiple waves of dam construction. Some of the oldest were built centuries ago, mainly to run mills. Then, in the early 1900s, there was a wave of hydropower dam construction to feed the demand for rural electrification. More recently, in the 1980s, the federal government funded another surge of hydrodam construction, this time intending to create more local renewable energy sources. But Chris Killian with the Conservation Law Foundation says once the federal subsidies went away, most of the dams weren't economically viable. So periodically you'll hear people push for, we should be, you know, repowering lots of dams. Many of these ones that were repowered are now shut down because they were completely marginal. Yet many of those defunct dams are still lingering in the river, blocking fish passage and affecting water levels and water temperature. And so I'd say right now, now about half of the concrete here is gone. They've been working all morning, hammering away at the concrete. That's Ron Rhodes with the Connecticut River Conservancy. We're standing on the banks of the Ompompanoosic River. It's a tributary of the Connecticut River in eastern Vermont. We're just downstream of a 20-foot-wide dam that's being demolished with a giant hydraulic hammer tool. So Mr. Gear, who owned the farm here, built it in 1983. It generated power from 84 to 94, so 10 years. The former owner, Howard Gear, was an engineer, and he researched and designed the project himself. Fast forward a few decades, and Rhodes says the same dam is listed on a state survey as a priority for removal because of the positive impact it could have on local species. So we'll have fish passage uh, for brook trout, especially our Vermont state cold water fish, but also other species, right? There's 
sculpin and dace and other minnows that live in here. And so they can get upstream. It opens up 17 miles of river. Rhodes and the local Conservation Commission wrote grants to drum up the $100,000 needed to fund this project. But even when there's money, there can be emotional resistance to removing dams. Because a lot of people in our town want the pond back. There, there was a lot more activity that you could do. There were a lot, the wildlife was different. You know, it's, they miss the beauty of the pond. They miss the idea of the pond. Kim Schofield recently bought a home along Indian Brook in Colchester, Vermont. She didn't fully appreciate what it meant that she was also buying a dam, a 150-year-old defunct dam, and the remains of the mill house along the riverbank. It's, you know, at first I thought it was kind of cool. I'm like, oh, cool, I own a dam. I didn't really, didn't really know all of the ramifications of owning a dam. So... And then when I went to get my homeowner's insurance, um, Walter Hauserman said to me, <clears throat> you're going to need more insurance, Kim. The insurance is about $50 more per month, and there's a 300 annual state inspection fee. Then there are safety issues to consider, and mosquito breeding grounds. The dam is breached, so the river water flows over the stone structure. But water still backs up, creating a swamp, and sometimes flooding Schofield's basement. Schofield thought about restoring the dam to make electricity. But she says to get a big enough turbine to power her home would cost around $200,000. If you look on YouTube and you see these people that put water wheels in the river and are generating, it generates about a light bulb worth of electricity. More importantly, Schofield wants to restore the river and allow fish to come upstream from Lake Champlain. She's working with local environmental group and state agencies to have the dam removed. She says she's excited about having beautiful riverfront property, which is less likely to flood her basement. And it puts the river back the way it was supposed to be, the way it was intended to be. That's what the universe wants. Schofield and the Gear family aren't the only dam owners interested in restoring rivers. Ron Rhodes with the Conservation River Conservancy says he's working on 12 dam removals, and more than half involve private landowners. That's Kathleen Masterson of VPR reporting. Not everyone's ready to tear down these dams, though. A new generation of entrepreneurs wants to find a way to capture their energy once again and to make money doing it. Fred Bever has more. The Goose River runs roughly nine miles from Maine's Swan Lake to meet the sea in the state's mid-coast area. Along the way, it passes through several dams and impoundments built more than a century ago to power a leatherboard mill, including this dam, now owned by a company called Goose River Hydro. This is the original turbine. This turbine drove a big flywheel and belt pulley system that supplied mechanical power to the mill that was here. Company co-founder Nick Cabral is a trim 25-year-old marine engineer. He and business partner Nick Bernier have been working six years to rehabilitate the river's moldering dams and bring them into service as hydroelectric plants. This summer, Cabral was the sole occupant of a ramshackle mill building they've converted into living quarters. His partner was at sea, working the engine room of a tramp ship. Despite their youth, the partners believe their training, willingness to put in sweat equity, and a $200,000 private loan could give them a chance in the energy industry. And we had just enough knowledge about electricity to be dangerous, so we put all that stuff together and thought, yeah, if we can you know, fix a ship that's bobbing and floating around in the ocean, we could probably fix a stationary piece of machinery, you know? Well, let's go take a look at it, what do you say? Yeah, we can go check it out. Okay, 
So this is called Mason's Dam? Mason's is a few miles upstream from the mill where Cabral lives. It's a small dam, maybe 15 feet tall, sloping down from a clear holding pool to the rock-strewn stream below. And it's a good example of a lot of the dams throughout Maine. It's stone masonry. This facility was used to manufacture axe handles. Now the dam manufactures electricity. At its base, a big culvert-style rust-colored tube called the penstock carries water from the dam down to the turbine system. Inside the powerhouse, Cabral shows off two turbine units built 30 years ago by an earlier hydro entrepreneur, now rehabbed by Cabral and his partner. Painted blue, big as refrigerators and shaped like torpedoes, the turbines shake and rattle like a hard-working combustion engine, although of course, no fossil fuels involved. It's the power of the river. So how much energy is running out of there right now? So right now we're producing between 38 and 45 kilowatts. And so that fluctuates based upon the water level in the head pond above. Cabral thinks of rain as pennies from heaven. The more water in the run of the river system, the more energy to be captured, and under a 20-year contract approved by state regulators, sold to the local utility at above market rates. And you can add on credit state policy provides to incentivize renewable energy generation. Still, even going full bore, these turbines alone would earn roughly $6 an hour, hardly enough to justify the heavy upfront acquisition, rehab, and licensing costs Goose River Hydro is incurring. Which is where, a few miles downstream, this concrete dam comes in. Just watch your foot in. More than 200 feet wide and 20 feet tall, it's the key to quadrupling the overall project's capacity. This is definitely, a, I think, the gem of the project. The penstock at the dam's base was designed to deliver some 40 cubic feet of water per second to a powerhouse below, although it's not handling the gushing supply so well right now. There's all these little pinhole leaks all over the penstock itself. You have some larger holes, which is where you're seeing a lot of that water come through. Cabral estimates it will take some half million dollars to rehab and retrofit this part of the system. There will be a lot of regulatory hurdles along the way, including an assessment of the project's effects on historic fish runs. But Cabral says it should be online by 2020. With dozens more smaller dams in Maine in need of refurbishment, he hopes the Goose River project will provide an example for other young entrepreneurs. With our growing old population, we've got to figure out a way to keep people in Maine and keep our economy moving forward. And hydropower is one of the, those good ways to do it and also play nice with the environment at the same time. When the project's fully operational, Cabral estimates it will produce more than $120,000 revenue annually. And this is far from his only plan for old dams in Maine. Cabral's also working to patent a sort of snap-on turbine system that would make it easier for municipalities and private owners to rehab the decaying mill-era dams that dot the region and capture enough energy to at least pay for their own upkeep. That's Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio. To see what these dams look like, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, vote first or die. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Even by New Hampshire's high standards, this was a pretty big week in politics. President Trump's controversial Voter Fraud Commission met in Manchester, and one of the commission's members, longtime New Hampshire Secretary of State Bill Gardner, faced criticism from all four members of the state's congressional delegation who asked him to leave the panel. Gardner wouldn't hear of it. New Hampshire people aren't accustomed to walking away or stepping down from their civic duty. And, and I will not either. But he did use the occasion of the meeting to rebuke Chris Kobach, the Kansas Secretary of State, for his op-ed in Breitbart suggesting widespread voter fraud in the 2016 New Hampshire election. It's a claim that factcheck.org called bogus. Gardner used milder language. The problem that has occurred because of what you wrote is the question of whether our election, as we have recorded it, uh, is real and valid. And it is real and valid. Meanwhile, a state judge ruled against a provision in a new voter law that would have subjected voters to a possible fine or jail time if they failed to submit residency paperwork in a timely fashion. The judge wrote that the provision was a, quote, very serious deterrent to the right to vote. That New Hampshire's elections have come under scrutiny is something that grates at state residents. The Granite State takes pride in the way it conducts its elections, with no institution more sacred than its first-in-the-nation primary. Scott Conroy is a longtime political reporter who grew up in neighboring Massachusetts and who became enamored with New Hampshire's political culture while covering presidential candidates crisscrossing the state. His book is called Vote First or Die, The New Hampshire Primary, America's Discerning, Magnificent, and Absurd Road to the White House. I caught up with him earlier this year at NPR Studios in New York. Scott Conroy, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, John. What fascinates you about the New Hampshire primary? From my very first campaign when I was covering Mitt Romney's uh, first presidential campaign for CBS News, my first day on the trail was in New Hampshire uh, at a Labor Day parade in Milford, which is a small town. Uh, New Hampshire is a state filled with small towns. And I just picked up immediately that there's something different in the air in New Hampshire. And it's not just because of the primary. The state legislature in New Hampshire has 400 state reps. So if you were to, that's the biggest state house in the country, and obviously New Hampshire is a pretty small state. If you were ex to extrapolate that to California, let's say, um, in terms of population, they'd have to have almost 12,000 people uh, in their state house. Uh, politics kind of runs through the, the bloodstream in New Hampshire in a way that I, I find it doesn't in any other state. Um, and then you, you look at the history of the primary, uh, which I get into uh, in my book quite a bit. Um, it's been first in the nation since 1920. Um, so that's something that just really, even Iowa, let's say, <laughs> um, isn't replicated anywhere else. Of course, Iowa's first, but Iowa's caucus system is not the same sort of thing. And you, you right. outlined that. New Hampshire is really the first place where people get to vote in the way that we think in America voting right now, the, the secret ballot. And it's, it's very different from Iowa. What are some of the differences? Because I know you've spent some time in Iowa, too. Yeah, and I love Iowa. So <laughs> no, no offense to my many friends in Iowa. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, also uh, a unique state politically, and people there really do pay attention, and it's got its own thing going for it. And 
you know, New Hampshire consistently has the highest level of participation um, of any state in, in the uh, the nominating calendar. So over 50% of registered voters in New Hampshire actually voted in, in 2016, which is a huge number for, you know, you know when, before you get to the general election. Uh, in Iowa, it's something like 19%. It's always below 20% of registered voters actually bother to show up for the thing. And it's largely because uh, the caucus system is pretty onerous. New Hampshire, you show up, there's no early voting, there's no absentee, you got to be there on primary day, you vote, and that's it. How has it managed to to keep this first in the nation status? And why do you think that it's so important to the people of New Hampshire? Because a lot of other states have moved up their primaries to try to get closer to the beginning. Explain the story of how exactly it's, it's managed to hang on so long. Yeah, I mean, it began almost by accident. And it, it, it held the first in the nation primary status from 1920 on. And for the first half century of that, no one really paid that much attention to it, frankly. The, in 1949, the, uh, the the state legislature in New Hampshire passed uh, a, a law whereby people would, from that point on, vote directly for presidential candidates. Because up until that point, um, they were just voting for delegates. So there, were, you, there was literally a slate of delegates, and you would just pick which one you wanted to. And that's what constituted the primary. 52 was the, the first, um, really the first New Hampshire primary that people paid much attention to. And part of the reason was because, you know, the incumbent uh, Harry Truman actually lost the primary uh, to uh, a Tennessee senator named Estes Kefauver. Um, And so, you know, from that point on, getting into the, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were consistently challenges every four years to New Hampshire being first. Um, from a variety of states, from the, both the DNC and the RNC, and I get into some of those specific examples in, in, in the book. But each time, New Hampshire was able to to beat that back. Uh, there, there is a state law that's been in place uh, since the 70s that says New Hampshire must have the, the first primary, basically. Um, so uh, they've allowed Iowa to go first because they don't consider it to be a similar election is, is the language, quote unquote, that, that's codified in, in the state law. Um, so really the, the reason that they've been able to beat back these challenges over the years has been largely because of one man, uh, and that's Bill Gardner, who's the Secretary of State in New Hampshire and has been since 1976. Uh, and he's just been a really vigorous defender of, of that state law and of the primary itself. There, there, there's nothing that's set in stone indefinitely that New Hampshire always has to be first. It's always a challenge. And every four years, Gardner has to fight for it. Um, and every four years, he's 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 succeeded so far. Um, it's pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable record. One of the things that people around the nation think of when they think of the New Hampshire primary is this unusual and sometimes awkward spectacle of people who are probably pretty famous back home, senators or governors, maybe don't have a national profile or maybe are very famous, right. having to walk the streets, yeah. walk into diners, walk into bars, and literally shake hands doing this this most basic of retail politics. Tell me a story about one of those that struck you while you were writing this book, because I, I feel like that's the thing that catches in people's minds that no matter how powerful you are, you've got to go and shake Millie's hand on Main Street in Asheville yeah. or else it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, just just as a disclaimer, the 2016 campaign um, 
is going to challenge that that notion because Donald Trump did not do that and he won. Um, you know, he, he he really did the opposite of what every expert in all the political class in New Hampshire says that you have to do to win. Uh, he held big rallies. He had a national media strategy. And it wasn't until the last week he had a couple of events in a diner and, you know, <laughs> just kind of for show, really. Um, he doesn't but, seem very comfortable in diners anyway. No, so. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that was, you know, he that was his strategy from the beginning. And to his credit, he executed it and he was right. It won. It, it won the, the, the primary form. Um, but, you know, the question is whether he is kind of a unique figure, which I think he probably is. And if you look back before Trump, um, and even if you look on the Democratic side with someone like Bernie Sanders, who really did build it up from a grassroots point uh, in 2016 and ended up beating Hillary Clinton by 22 points in New Hampshire, which is really just remarkable when you think about it. I mean, it he was someone that almost everyone across the board thought had no chance uh, of winning the primary whatsoever. Um, to win by that margin against someone as as well known uh, as her was was really remarkable. But I think to me the quintessential uh, New Hampshire figure is John McCain, and um, you know there's a story in my book. Of course, John McCain has won the New Hampshire primary twice in 2000 and 2008, and both times he had to come from behind in a really dramatic way. Um, and, and in both cases he really did do it the, the the old school, quintessentially New Hampshire way of shaking hands, meeting 12 people at a time at a, at a diner, um, at, a, at a pub, and just grinding it out. And, and I think, you know, if I having interviewed John McCain and talked to him for this book, um, I think if he had it his way, he'd just spend all of his time campaigning in New Hampshire his whole <laughs> life. But I think, you know, the, the very first event that he had uh, in, in 1999, when he was running against uh, you know George W. Bush, who was thought to be at that point and just an absolutely unbeatable juggernaut, that and anyone running against him would have no shot because he had consolidated the the establishment support uh, uh, in the party, and of course he had a famous name and uh, had all the money. Uh, John McCain was really not well known at all then, um, and you know he did a, a a town hall meeting in Peterborough, which is a really kind of quaint, you know, which is a word that gets thrown out a, a lot in, when it comes to New Hampshire. But even for New Hampshire, it's a very quaint town uh, in the western part of the state, and they advertise it as uh, an ice cream social. And depending on ha- on who you talk to, I, I've heard uh, figures ranging from. I think nine people to 20 people showed up, you know, and this is supposed to be John McCain's big New Hampshire launch. And, you know, he he sat there and he, he talked to those people for an hour and a half and gave them their pitch. And the, the idea was, you know, social media before social media. And so those 20 people talked to their 20 friends and then it expands out that way in concentric circles. And that's really how John McCain uh, was able to, to build his campaign in 2000. And it's interesting to, to just to show you how much he respected that process uh, in 2008 in the general election. Um, you know, they knew they were behind and they, they, they every hour um, at that point in, in the days leading up to election day are very valuable for the candidate's time. And John McCain's campaign, the the day before the general election in 2008, um, made a beeline all the way across the country to New Hampshire. Um, and, and they not not only that, they didn't just do a big airport rally in Manchester. John McCain insisted that they go back to the Peterborough Town Hall, where, where it all be, <laughs> began for him. You know, nine years before, uh, and he did his last event in, in 2008 there. That shows you how much New Hampshire really means to someone like that. You, you tell a story pretty early in your book that I think speaks more to the not just the quaintness, but the power of these individual interactions. Uh, you tell the story of a young man from the Congo yeah. and getting a chance to ask a question of of Rand Paul. Can you just tell that story? Yeah. It, it, it is a powerful idea that 
uh, is laid out there? Yeah, well, I went on a walk um, in Dixville Notch, which a lot of people probably know is the f- famous um, little, you can call it a town. It's not even really a town. It's a, it's a location in far northern New Hampshire. It's about a three-hour drive from Manchester, and that's where they have the, the famous midnight vote. Um, so they get to cast their ballots before, right at midnight on primary day and on the general election day. And, and it's just one of those New Hampshire traditions that's kind of fun. Um, but I, I did a, a walk um, uh, in, I think, January of 2015, so about a year before the primary with a group that was trying to advocate for campaign finance reform. And they were walking around the state. And um, I did the first leg of the walk, which was about 11 miles um, from the, this tiny town of uh, Dixville Notch to another tiny town of called Errol. Um, and it was in uh, January in New Hampshire, so it was it was kind of cold. It was a little in cold, northern New Hampshire, a little chilly. Yeah, and uh, one of the participants in the in the walk was a young guy from from the Congo who had been a, a refugee. He was one of the first people that I had heard in New Hampshire um, bring up. You know, he was he was a political activist, and he brought up uh, Bernie Sanders and how that you know the, he he hoped that some of these ideas that they were talking about a campaign finance reform. He hoped that someone like Bernie Sanders would actually run and, and give a voice to, to that. And I kind of, in my head, I dismissed it at the time. You know, it, of course, Bernie Sanders is not going to be relevant in this campaign. <laughs> shows you how much I know. And I think shows you how much, you know, the people that are involved on the grassroots level really do uh, have a leg up uh, more so than the people that uh, are, are, you know, sitting in uh, New York or, or Washington. <laughs> um, and uh, he was able to, you um, go to a, one of Rand Paul's uh, events and stand in front of a, someone that wanted to be uh, president of the United States and, and stand face to face to him and, and ask him a question. And that's what that's what makes New Hampshire unique. You know, these guys all start off, except for someone like Trump, speaking to small groups and they're trying to win your individual vote, like like in, you know, a, a, a town selectman race or, a, you know, a, a mayoral race in a small city. That's really what the feel is like. And so someone... From that background, coming from you know a, a, a place uh, um, thousands of miles away, um, to be standing there in New Hampshire um, asking someone, a United States senator, a question that he wanted to know the answer to, um, was was pretty powerful, I think, and that that's kind of what makes the primary great. Mm-hmm. So, what do you see as we look ahead to the very important uh, twenty twenty uh, presidential race? Does New Hampshire play the same sort of role this time around, do you think? I think New Hampshire and its status on the calendar will be under attack this time around um, more than ever before, really, Um, especially on the Democratic side. This is a state that's 94 percent white, Mm -hmm. and it's one of the least diverse in the country. And it comes after Iowa, which is also 93 percent white. And so especially on the Democratic side where, you know, um, the the electorate is, is really diverse and the, and the country is becoming more diverse, it's it's becoming tougher and tougher for New Hampshire to justify that. But what always happens in the past is that the candidates themselves start heading up to New Hampshire and Iowa, and then they become advocates for, for keeping the, the current system in place because they're not going to, you know, go out there and say, no, I don't. I don't I, I, I want to up, upend the system when they're campaigning in New Hampshire. Sure. Right? So um, I, I just say that, you know, Bill Gardner still um, has his position and the state law is still what it is. So um, I think there are going to be a lot of challenges uh, that we'll see over the next year or so. Um, but I I wouldn't bet against New Hampshire. You know, they've always pulled it off and, and maintained their, their spot in the calendar before. That, that whole idea of, of going up there to float a trial balloon. You, you write about uh, an interaction you have with, with Jeb Bush in which he's 
clearly running already, <laughs> but he yeah. can't say that he's running. Right. And, and that's another part of the, I don't know if it's a mystique uh, circus that happens around the state, yeah. <laughs> right? Because you're, they're clearly yeah. doing exactly, if they're in New Hampshire, yeah. it's clear that they're running. Well, yeah. And in the, in the 2016 cycle, it was more ridiculous than ever because of the post-Citizens United landscape. There was a situation whereby once a candidate said, I am uh, a, a candidate for president of the United States, that candidate could no longer uh, collect money for the super PAC that was advocating on his or her behalf. And of course, as everyone will probably remember, Jeb Bush's super PAC raised about $100 million before he even entered the race, uh, which we all thought at the time would be a big juggernaut for him. Didn't turn out that way. Someone like Bernie Sanders, again, that just came in early on. It was like, yeah, I'm running, you know, and, you know, I'm running to, I'm running to win. People respond positively to that directness and that authenticity. You know, you had candidates, I, I won't name other names, but, you know, that, that do the usual dog and pony show. And people are just kind of sick of that because we can all see through it. And it speaks to a larger point about authenticity. Um, mm. So I think... Um, this time around, they'd be wise to just say, if they're running, just say they're running and get into it. That, that, that whole Bernie Sanders effect uh, that you mentioned is interesting. And New Hampshire gave him a, a big start and it gave him a big win. And it showed us something probably that we should have paid a little bit more attention yes. to, that, that yes. America was ready to, to hear yeah. a Bernie Sanders right. and the Democratic Party at least the establishment really wasn't, or they and, were saying they were And I would argue the same exact notion applies on the Republican side. Um, you know, uh, I, I think you could look at Trump's victory in New Hampshire and say that it was it was a warning to the rest of the country that this thing is real. And people were still dismissing the idea that he was going to, A, win the nomination, and B, even have a chance of winning the presidency. Remember, in the subsequent primaries, it was like, you know, Mar oh, Marco Rubio finished third in South Carolina. That's that's the real story here. It's like, well, no, that's not actually the real story. And you're not paying attention to this dynamic that's going on on the ground. And I could see it in New Hampshire. There were a lot of um, people that I met in New Hampshire, some of whom I write about in the book, that in the days and weeks, months leading up to the primary, were trying to choose between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Because mm -hmm. if you're an independent voter in New Hampshire, you can vote in either the Democratic or Republican primary. And I thought that was fascinating. And it, it was just people that most of them probably didn't pay close attention to politics. They didn't have a well-defined political ideology, but they were just really sick of what, what had been going on in Washington. And both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were two guys that they could look at on a TV screen or turn out to their event and in 20 seconds realize this was something new and different. And the man, the establishments in both parties were just painfully slow to pick up on that and how powerful it was. After a long time as a political uh, writer and reporter, you've gotten to television, you're moving out to California now. I guess I'm just wondering, as 2020 rolls around, are you going to be looking forward to going back to New Hampshire and staying in <laughs> crappy motel rooms and drinking at bars and going to diners and talking I mean, to people? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether or not I'll be doing it as a reporter again. But I, I love, uh, I love the process. It's really uh, in Iowa too, frankly. Um, New Hampshire, it's a little easier. You know, my, uh, my, my wife was an embedded reporter for NBC 
uh, in the 2012 campaign, and she lived in a, a, a Hampton Inn in uh, Bedford, New Hampshire, for, for for eight months. So she really got to uh, experience that too. And some since then, you know, in this 2016 campaign, she and some of her friends, when I was still reporting on the campaign, showed up as kind of political tourists. And a lot of people do that uh, because it's just unlike anything else you'll see in American politics. And since New Hampshire is such a small state geographically, you can get to 90% of the events um, within you know an hour drive of each other, and you can see Bernie Sanders in the morning, and then go see uh, you know Donald Trump that afternoon. Um, and so I would recommend you know people all around New England uh, when, once this thing starts um, picking up steam again, even if you don't live in New Hampshire, just kind of show up and check it out. It's it's unlike anything else in politics, and it and it really is it's 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 civic engagement at, at a grassroots local level. And I think that's, in the end, that's why I'm a believer in the primary. It really is just different there. And I think it's important now more than ever to preserve institutions like the New Hampshire primary in our, in our politics. Scott Conroy's book is called Vote First or Die, The New Hampshire Primary, America's Discerning, Magnificent, and Absurd Road to the White House. Coming up, building tourist attractions in unlikely places. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Connecticut has long suffered from a kind of civic inferiority complex. The state is stuck between Boston and New York, but it's not thought to be as vibrant as those two urban centers. It's also thought to be more congested than places like Vermont or the Berkshires. Then, of course, there are the money problems. It's one of the richest states in the nation, but the state budget is billions of dollars in the hole. And the capital city, Hartford, struggles with the perception that it has too much crime and not enough to do. Something big, though, is on the horizon. A national park set to open in the next few years. It'll tell the story of one of the city's most important industrial leaders. But is this a history worth honoring? Madison Frame, a recent graduate of Hartford's Journalism and Media Academy, has this report. I moved to the city four years ago and I was more than excited. A new place, new people, new stories. But as time went on, I got bored with Hartford. Our city's slogan is, Hartford has it. My friends and I would make fun of it because there are times where it seems our city has nothing but poverty. But a recent trip to a neighborhood I thought I knew and a meeting with someone passionate about the history there gave me a different perspective. This was the richest city in America, small city in America. It's unbelievable. I know it's ironic too, we won't go there. Honestly, for me as a history person, I look at these things, all these gifts. That's historian Bill Halsley. He's the author of the book, Cult, The Making of an American Legend. Halsley asked us to meet him at this statue built in 1905. It's got a, a big figure of Sam Colt, the captain of industry, you know, kind of the, the industrial uh, empire builder. And it's got another little statue of Sam Colt, the boy. He was a teenager when he came up with the concept of the um, Colt revolver. 
And on the left side is a We're standing at the top of Colt Park, a big city park with a playground and ball fields. Down the hill, you can see the massive Colt factory complex. Halsey's excitement about this place is contagious. The Coltsville area is important because of its national and even international significance. The fact that, that a revolution in the world of work started here. That revolution in the world of work was precision manufacturing. Samuel Colt's innovations allowed him to sell hundreds of thousands of guns to the military and civilians on the western frontier. The gun making industry really kick-started the whole industrial age and it was during that period from 1850 to 1920 uh, for about 75 years that Hartford was just on fire. Thanks to a law proposed by Connecticut Congressman John Larson and signed by President Obama back in 2014, plans are in the works to turn Colt Park into a national park. It will be dedicated to the story of Sam Colt and his company. Still, not everyone in the city is happy about the national park. I think if I had the money that they're going to spend on the site, I'd spend it somewhere completely different. That's Steve Thornton, a local amateur historian. Back in 2014, he wrote an opinion piece in the Connecticut Mirror with the headline, Honoring Sam Colt, a misplaced effort and a waste of money. I think the more we learn about the man, the more we have to ask ourselves exactly what are we celebrating here. Uh, should we name buildings after people held, who held slaves? So the Colt legacy is very much like that, and that's not hyperbole. Colt uh, was a self-promoter to the point where he really had no loyalty to this country at all. He sold arms and built up the the um, war capacity of the southern states right up until the Civil War. And in fact, he sent his last shipment of guns to the south after Fort Sumter. The Battle of Fort Sumter occurred on August 12, 1861, and was considered the first battle of the Civil War. That's got to be a significant part of the story. They were trading with uh, states that were engaging in the enslavement of four million people. So. That's who Colt is, too. However Sam Colt felt about the Civil War, he didn't live to see the end of it. After his death in January 1862, his wife Elizabeth took over and ran the company for 39 years. And while Sam may have traded arms to the South, Elizabeth donated much of their land to the city. She left Hartford Colt Park and donated her house as an endowment to a retirement home for women. Bill Hosley says she's the greatest philanthropist Hartford has ever seen. But Thornton sees it differently. We had a situation here where a more efficient method of killing people is, is uh, the money that allowed um, uh, Elizabeth Colt to be so generous. Thornton's remarks bring up a common struggle for us all, our moral compass. Should we honor Sam and Elizabeth Colt? who, while doing much for Hartford, did manufacture lethal weapons and, in a sense, supported slavery. Thornton says that if we're going to discuss our historical figures, we have a responsibility to tell the whole story. So will the National Park tell the ugly parts of the cult story too? We asked the park superintendent, James Woolsey. One thing that I, I am proud of about serving with the National Park Service is when we tell our nation's stories, we tell them honestly and, and in a full manner with multiple perspectives. Woolsey says another question he gets 
is how does the National Park plan to tell the story of guns in America? But I guess how I would answer that is what better place to tell the story of firearms than, than at Coltsville? This, this place where, you know, helped arm the, the country, was involved in, you know, the Indian Wars out west, uh, helped um, arm our nation for war in World War I, World War II. You know, I think that this is the place to tell that story in all its complexity, and we shouldn't shy away from controversy. Woolsey says he expects there to be public meetings during the process of building the park. Therefore, the people of Hartford can have a say in how the story of Coltsville is told. Back at Colt Park, Bill Hawsley says knowing Harvard's history can help residents feel more connected to the place we live. Civic attachment, that quality of consciousness that makes people care about a place, is to me the X factor in making a place great. You know, it's really hard. You can't, as I always say, you can't love a person you don't know, and it's hard to love a place you don't know. So part of this idea of history is that it gives people a, a, a familiarity with those things that are special and different. As for me, I think the only way to truly love where you live is to get to know it and get involved. Making Colt Park a national park can only help the city in the long run. Coltsville's history is definitely worth honoring, if the whole story is told. That story's by Madison Frame. She's a freshman at Stevenson University in Maryland. That story was produced in collaboration with the Journalism and Media Academy in Hartford. We've got photos of Colt Park and the renovated Colt Factory building at our website, nextnewengland.org. Now, while Hartford dreams of creating a tourist attraction from the ground up, Coaticook, Quebec, which sits right across the border from the tiny town of Norton, Vermont, well, they pulled it off. Local officials took an unusual idea, they made a $1 million gamble, and they hit a tourism geyser. Coaticook has a population of about 9,200 people, but in the last few years it drew nearly a half a million people for a nighttime stroll through Foresta Lumina. Reporter Chris Jensen went to see for himself. They follow a path that's wired for light and sound, and it tells a tale officials describe as, quote, inspired by the area's myths and legends. The 1.6-mile stroll centers on the story of Margaret. She's a little girl who lived nearby long ago. She could, quote, see what others could not. And her spirit still lives in the forest, along with fairies and other nocturnal creatures. The route crosses the suspension bridge high above the gorge. And then it slips through the woods with sometimes stunningly elegant lighting of trees and rocks. And there are some amazingly sophisticated projections. There's Margaret, dancing, and she's surrounded by butterflies. There's a huge red-eyed forest creature. And a little farther along, two eyes appear in a tree trunk and blink at passers-by. Children and adults ooh and awe. Before Forest Illumina, Quaticook existed largely on forestry, agriculture, and manufacturing. Tourism was really a minor factor. But some of those tourists 
went to the nonprofit Parc de la Gorge Recreation Area. And that's where Carolyn Sage is the executive director. Visitors there can cross the gorge by way of a 550-foot-long pedestrian suspension bridge. But in the years before Forested Lumina, Sage was seeing less and less foot traffic. We, have the, we came to the conclusion that the hiking is in decline. She churned through a lot of ideas. And finally, she settled on one. Could something be done to light up the Parc de la Gorge? Sage contacted Moment Factory. It's a Montreal firm, and it specializes in sophisticated outdoor lighting and sound exhibits. It describes itself as providing, quote, innovative storytelling, creating uniquely compelling multimedia worlds. They were really, I think, really open to do something different. That's Moment Factory's Jonathan Saint-Ange. And they had the guts to take the risk and to push it further and to raise a larger financing, I guess, that they would have imagined. Foresta Lumina was going to cost at least $800,000. And where would Kowatakuk get the funding? <laughs> that was a big problem there. That's Bertrand Lamoureux. He's the mayor of Kowatakuk. And he says there were skeptics. People, they were ashamed to, to tell me that you're crazy. But others thought it could be a good thing for the town. They figured it was worth a shot. And bit by bit, local and regional organizations came up with the money. On July 12, 2014, Foresta Lumina was ready to open, and Carolyn Sage was nervous. We wished to receive 80 people for the first night. With 80 people, nobody could say it was a flop. Then, the customers began showing up. 80 people showed. Then the total was 200. A little later, 500 had gone through, and they kept coming. Sage was delighted. The first night, we, we have uh, 800. Through the summer, word spread, and the number grew. About 72,000 bought tickets. But the attraction's unexpected success brought unexpected problems for the park and for Quatacook. According to the local Chamber of Commerce, restaurants in town ran out of food. And those with homes around the Parc de la Gorge were really unhappy, the mayor says. All the people, the visitors, they were parking all around the streets, on the whole street there. So the people there, they said, we don't want that anymore. Plus, the money coming into Foresta Lumina wasn't reaching the business district. Many of those tourists parked on those residential streets. They paid to go through Foresta Lumina. Then they got back in their cars and they drove off. The solution was to designate a parking area in the business district and provide free shuttles. In addition to the crowds, Foresta Lumina got an unexpected industry accolade. In 2016, it was given a Thea Award from the Themed Entertainment Association for Outstanding Achievement for an Interactive Attraction. It was one of 12 such awards worldwide, including Disney exhibits in Hong Kong and Anaheim. The attendance grew from 72,000 in 2014 to 156,000 last year. One of the businesses that's benefited is the Restro Bar Ayer on Main Street. Would you like coffee, dessert, something else? Carolyn Giroux is the owner, and here's what she says about the impact. A lot more business, of course, a lot of tourists, much more tourists. She figures there's been at least a 50% increase in her business. Quatacook has only two motels, and they tend to be full. So to provide more lodging, 
the town allows anyone with a spare room to rent it, regardless of zoning. That gives more folks a chance to pick up a little extra change. Here in New England, tourist attractions have been based on reaching into the past, like Plymouth Plantation, or the landscape, like the White Mountain National Forest. But Little Quatico gambled on taking its natural beauty and blending it with a high-tech fantasy world and found it worked splendidly. That's Chris Jensen. He's from the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism. If you'd like to experience Foresta Lumina for yourself, you still have a few more weeks. The attraction closes for the season after October 8th, and it will awaken again next June. Visit our website for photos and a video from the Enchanted Forest, nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Nicole Ellis, Takea Whittle, Sam Hockaday, Jose Vargas, and NPR in New York. Our theme music is by Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and much more. That's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. <laughs>